Hi and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with Emma Gatti, who is a volcanologist, that's right, a volcano scientist and a science educator who is about to launch her her new project called Mona Lisa Bites, uh, which is a, a science education project. I think it's a fascinating idea. We know each other from Cambridge. We went to Cambridge together. We were at the same college and she's a very, uh, just a wonderful, uh, excitable Italian. I mean, that sounds racist. She's just an Italian. (laughs) She's from Milan. She's so smart. She's so lovely. And I was so happy to have the opportunity or the excuse to get back in touch with her after, you know, you fall out of touch with people after university. And then I saw that she was doing this new project and because of what's going on in the world right now, I think it's important uh, to talk about science education, which I think is one of the reasons why the world is in a bit of a parlous state. Um, people not understanding the science behind a lot of the politics that's happening right now and not being able to communicate it properly, I think, has caused more trouble than there needed to be. So as a result, I, con- I contacted Emma. I said, let's do a T-cast together and she said yes and so this is that from her in Milan uh, and me in Sydney we did it via zoom the audio quality might not be as good as the traditional tea with Alice's where we're both in the same room having the same sort of high quality microphones but I think it's such an interesting conversation that it is well worth listening to I hope you enjoy listening to it Um, before I go I should say thank you to my patreon supporters thank you so much for um supporting me it's an incredible thing to do and it makes me feel genuinely happy every day to know that there are people who value what I do Uh, thank you all of you who don't support me on patreon who just listen to this podcast that is also supportive and it helps a lot people who tweet people who give good ratings all of those things you know how these internet (laughs) career stuff works Um, I will talk to you again next week And if you have an opportunity, if you have not yet seen Savage on Amazon Prime, please do that if you want to. And if you have seen it and want to recommend it to people, maybe consider this uh, an opportunity to do that. This, I don't know, uh, I'm so bad at plugging things. Um, Please, please download Savage. And if you have, it's not even a download, please stream Savage. And if you have, and if you like it, please tell other people. Uh, Because if it gets a lot of views, um, a lot of, you know, five-star reviews and a lot of download streamies, streamies, geez, um, then they'll let me do more stuff. Uh, the resistance is also on Amazon prime available in many regions, but not all regions. And of course, as ever, if you want to download the resistance or ethos via my Patreon, you can do that at the $5 level, um, or you can download it from my website for a one-off payment. That's all. I'm a little rambling. I'm a little bit scrambled. It's been just an incredible couple of weeks and I wanted to, I wanted to put out this podcast and also say thank you and also just gush love out into the world in a really aggressive way. Um, If you want a daily satirical news podcast set in an alternate dimension, do have a look at The Last Post, which is my daily satirical news podcast set in an alternate dimension. It's very silly and it takes 10 to 15 minutes a day Um, of your time. It takes more than that of my time, obviously. Uh, This is a long intro. I will stop talking and I'll talk to you again next week. You're having tea with Alice. So, who are you and what are you drinking? (laughs) I'm Emma from Milan. 
Uh, I'm an old friend of Alice. So old means that we've been knowing for a long time, not that I'm old anagraphically. And I'm not drinking tea. I've, I've been drinking tea because it's uh, 9 a.m. in the morning. Yeah. Well, it's so good to be tea with Alice. So. Yes, it's really tea and it's really with Alice. It could not be more literal than this. <laughs> You're in Milan, which I mean, assume I assume that means you've been locked down for a while now. Yes, yes, um, yes. It's a bit of a apocalyptic situation. Of course, I think like everybody else in the world never experienced something like this. It's very strange it is happening here because Italy has not been on, the, you know, on the under the flashlight for something like three hundred years. So now that is everybody's, <laughs> we have the New Yorker journalist here, we have the Guardian people, it never happened, you know. It's been, uh, it's been a long time that we didn't receive so much attention and it's not for a good reason, Alice. No, not um, a great reason. No, not a great reason. <laughs> so yeah, we've been locked down for uh, almost six weeks. It's getting a bit hard now, like, um, you know, the first week is kind of like, oh, this is different. The second week is like, this is different, but I would be happy if it ends soon. And now the sixth week, we are just fed up with it. We are just really fed up. And so spring is coming, of course, yeah. So it's also harder to stay at home. You want to go out. Um, yeah. yeah, the sunshine and everything and the days are getting longer. And I know exactly. it's a very outdoors culture, particularly at this time of year. Yeah, it's where we want to get out and we cannot. And it's uh, even harder, I think, for people with children, you know, because they're all, the schools are closed, so nobody is going to school. It's just mayhem. Yeah, that, that is wild. What have you been wrestling with recently, other than being trapped in a room? Um, well, to, for my personal life, for my personal daily routine has not changed much because it's been two years that I've been working from home. So for me, I'm always in my PJs on Monday. <laughs> I feel no much, uh, much of a difference, you know, from my normal routine. And um, it's been like, I, you and I, we both have probably changed career in, uh, in some moment. You changed it earlier. When I met you, you were already shifting. Well, when you met me, I think 10 years ago, something like that, God. Um, <laughs> Uh, I was still into very much academia. So I was a researcher that was pushing our academic career. And I carried on for another five years after we, we met. So I went to the States, I went to NASA, I was working as a researcher for JPL. And was it all still volcanology? That's your area yes, of expertise? Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. It was space geology. So I was working on Mars, but still, uh, still in my field. <laughs> It's not working, working on Mars. Working on Mars. <laughs> <laughs> on Mars bars. <laughs> okay. um, and then I decided to shift, to change career too. Um, and so here I am. So you're oh. launching this new thing now. Yeah. So it's, I started to think, it's not, been, it's not that I shift, switched like from day to night. It was an idea that was already in my head for a while to move out from academia and get to more into science outreach and communication. And uh, 
but I wanted to do it in Italy. I felt if I was going to do it in my country, I would have had a bigger impact than doing it in the US, where there are so many good science outreach sources already. So I moved back to Italy. Also because it, with your language is easier, you know, mm-hmm. kind of difficult to play with English if you're not English. And um, so I moved back to Italy and it took me two years to reach uh, a embryonic a kind of like minimum stage of development. So for one year, I just throw ideas in my head and they were all bad. They were all very bad ideas. <laughs> they didn't apply. Uh, you need a bit of experience even to think a good business idea. And yeah, then... Uh, you fail a lot to get good at anything, I think. Exactly. Yeah. So a lot of people have this idea that you go to bed and then the morning after you wake up with an Eureka moment. Eureka is not like that. You know, you just keep doing stupid or wrong stuff until you finally kind of selection and kind of filter the good ideas. And so six months ago, I was presenting, I was giving a science talk in a conference and I was very bored with my own voice. I was very bored with myself. I, I realized that whatever I was trying to say it was not hitting the people. You know, nobody was in. Yeah, some people are interested, but they're always the people that are really naturally interested in the subject. So it's not you're, you're really not reaching out if only four people that have a degree in astrophysics they're listening. <laughs> you're not really science communicating. And, so that's one of and, the, just to interrupt, that's one of the reasons why when I had the choice, when I finished law and I thought academia or comedy, I thought comedy because the higher up you get, the more people you're talking to. Whereas I think in academia, sometimes the higher up you get, the fewer people can even understand what you're trying to say. Yeah, it's a very close club, which is fine. You know, some people love it and it's okay. It's a, but it was not for me. I felt like I was really talking to a wall and it was not giving me the, 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 the sensation that I was actually putting my, my energy out. So mm. Whatever was my energy, you know, like if you want to get a bit mystical. Um, so, yeah, I, I felt that there was no communication. I was not doing my job properly. I felt the need to put a bit of interaction I, I, to, to, to reach other people something mm-hmm. more visual, something more dynamic, something more interactive. And so I reached out with the science, uh, with the communication studio, and they actually target uh, visual, uh, digital communication, animation, virtual reality. And I, I went there with the, my problem. I say, look, I'm trying to do science outreach, and I think I'm boring. <laughs> 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 You help me. <laughs> I, I think I'm not hitting the right way to talk about science uh, to, to the people. I'm still very sectorial. I still talk to only people that they understand me. Uh, it's not funny. It's not entertaining. It's not uh, empathic. You know, mm. comedy is very empathic. People laugh with you because they kind of feel what you're trying to say, you know, they, you, they hit you, you hit them on the same wavelength. And they yeah, smile. Yeah, that's the important. Yeah. For me, that's the game of comedy, is you take an idea from your head and you try and put it in their head and you can see when it lands, you can feel it hit them. It comes back to you in laughter and that, that's very satisfying about comedy. Um, but you were, you felt you were missing that. 
I'm missing that because I mean, like the, the thing of humor, Alice, it really reaches everybody. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, people that if they're going, if they're gonna have a laugh, they will come out happy. They will come out lighter. They will remember what you're trying to say. You know, it's such a good way to communicate, even you know, difficult, difficult concepts somehow. Yeah. So I was thinking. I was searching for something like this, something that like, how can I communicate something that can be also quite heavy, but it can reach everybody independently from the barrier that can be imposed by a degree or by demographic um, the distribution. So I spoke with these guys and these guys were like, okay, how about we try to put together a digital magazine of science communication or science magazine, digital, because this is the digital era, of course. Mm-hmm. And, and we try to play around with ideas. We try to make science more interesting, more empathic, more, um, I would say more sexy is not a word that I like, uh, more like uh, funky maybe, you know? Yeah. And we start to play with the ideas of using graphic designs, visual, um, visual tools, to transform a data concept, a number, a graph, x, y, graph, a a table, you know, a data table in something that can be interactive. And you open your smartphone and you're like, wow, this is cool. I want to read the article. And that's where Mona Lisa Bytes was born. You know, we started to think, can we merge science concept, heavy, heavy research stuff, Okay, that gives you the academic rigor. The stuff that you're reading is correct, is real, is fact-checked. With a digital form of expression, if you read, um, I don't know if you took a look at, like recently with the COVID-19 crisis, the Washington Post has published the most read article ever. And this article is not a normal article. What makes this article great is that they have a simulation of yes, how I've people seen that get. One. Exactly. Everybody has seen it. Everybody has seen it. Okay. And it's, uh, it's a very appealing way to do journalists. You know, they take the data and they transform it in an animation. And the animation is quite simple. You know, little dots that they get colored when they touch each other. Great. Everybody got it. Everybody. Mm-hmm. Behind it, there is a serious work. You know, the guy that made that graph is a graphic uh, designer. So somebody actually got a degree in, in IT and then study design. So it's easy, but it's not easy behind it. But it's a new way to think about data, to communicate with the public, you know, and the digital market allows you to don't create static figures anymore. You can see balls moving, color changing, things going up, things going down. And that what makes it interesting. That's when people will read it. So that's what we are trying to do. We just want to merge the science concept with a visual, appealing, interactive way to communicate them, adapt to the fact that we live in 2020 and everybody reads the news on the iPhone instead of reading them on a newspaper. So this is really interesting. I, I, was, I studied rhetoric. That's one, one of the things that I studied. And the idea behind everything that I do certainly is that it's not enough to just have an idea. It's only, it only becomes something if you can communicate it. You can only really test it if you can communicate it and you should be able to communicate it clearly because otherwise 
it's just for you. It's just a nice thing that happened for you. Uh, and so one of the things is this kind of very old fashioned idea of, of rhetoric from Aristotle, which is that you need to have, uh, they need to know sort of who you are, where you're coming from, what your authority is. Uh, it needs to have structure. It needs to make sense. It needs to work in, if it's a joke, it needs to have the form of a joke or it needs to be satisfying in a particular way. And the third bit, and I think this is kind of the most essential bit for what you're doing, is that they have to care. They have to know why it's important to them or what about it should interest them in order for them to properly engage with the work. Because you could have a maths professor giving you a perfectly well-reasoned set of arguments. And if it has nothing to do with you, you'll just be bored. You won't connect with it. So who are you, sorry, you carry on. No, no, go for the question. <laughs> who are you working with? Are you working with good people or is it all just you in a little room on your own? Um, no, there are, it would be impossible to do it this by myself because I am the, 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 the content part and the science part. And, but there is 50% of this work is like properly visual digital technology, which I have no background whatsoever in. So it's a team. So 50% is me thinking how we transform the content in something interesting. Another 50% is how we pick up this content, we shake it up and we make it firework. So there are, we are, there are is me and then there's a studio communication team, which is called Jumper. And they're specifically focused on uh, communication and publishing uh, um, issues. But what you were saying about why people should care is a very important question, especially in science. Now, in academia, we really used to think this is interesting because I work on it. Therefore, it must be interesting. <laughs> and I don't care because if you don't think it's interesting, you're an idiot. End of the story. I'm right here. You're wrong. Mm -hmm. That's obviously the worst thing you can do when you try to communicate something to someone else. You have to always think why you should care. How do I make this interesting for the community? And how do I explain that this is interesting and important to the community? Otherwise, they won't listen. You cannot start communication thinking, you guys all should listen to me because I'm clever. <laughs> and it doesn't work. So one of the things that I have to do is try to, and you, uh, you might know actually, but for me it's a new thing, how difficult it is to filter the hundreds of research papers, hundreds of research news you can read with this view of why this is interesting for the community. Because many research papers, they are just very flat. Very dry, mm. very specific, very narrow. Yeah. And it doesn't, it's not, when, when, when I say, you know, it has to be interesting to someone, they have to know why they should care. It's not always, oh, because this will make you money or, oh, because this will get you laid. People are actually broader than that. That's a sort of an underestimation of what people might be interested in, you know, it's, whether it's coming from something interesting historically or whether it changes something that you assumed you believed or whether it, there are so many other ways to think of things as interesting. Absolutely. I was not thinking about you should care because it's going to get you laid, but you're right. We should specify it. I meant in the second way you expressed it in a broader view because people are curious. I agree with you that it's not true that everyone uh, is uh, 
is you know superficial and just stick to the ground of the basic needs people are curious and if you bring them the news in the right way they will be willing to challenge us at their own views of course you have to present them in a way that you know you pose them the problem in the right way and you show them how their view can be challenged but in fact i will add that if you tackle the right curiosity news the right the right news that they tick tick your curiosity people will be willing to challenge their view and to broaden their horizons yeah i mean i think that's one of one of the important things about rhetoric is if you can draw people in then you can show them a new way of thinking or a new angle on something that they might not never have thought about properly before or they just made an assumption or that just comes from their background and they've never questioned it i i believe and this could be naivety i believe that a lot of people, maybe not all people, but a lot of people want to learn and are interested in changing their minds or learning new things or developing themselves. And at the same time, it's your your job, my job is to make that an appetizing process. If you think, you know, my job is to feed people, you're not just going to slam yeah. down like a slab of protein, a fistful of fat and like some vitamin pills. You're going to try and present them with a meal that they want to eat because then they'll come back to you for more of, of that. Yeah, this is exactly where I'm going with this. With this. These are exactly the questions I'm asking myself. How can I make this ap appetite? How can I stimulate the appetite? And how can I serve them a meal that they want to eat today and tomorrow and come back? And particularly in light of the fact that the very broad audience now is or has been for the last 10 years eating the intellectual equivalent of junk food in a lot of their sources. It's, uh, this is one of the biggest challenges, I think, for, for uh, us, uh, we say, or in general, people that come from an intellectual background, is how to not serve junk food, but don't put it a price tag on it such that only certain people can access yeah, you Fine. don't want to be the Gwyneth Paltrow. Hey, no, no. <laughs> Too fancy, but yeah, yeah, it's healthy, but no one can really afford to. <laughs> well, that's also like that's uh, that's that opens a kind of worms with Gwyneth Paltrow. I've been following her because I was intrigued by the entire thing, mm -hmm. you know. And I was living in Los Angeles where Goop was like the light fundamentally. So, uh, what you just said is correct. Uh, like they the mismatch between what she communicates and the inaffordability of what she offers. There is also an underlying tone of completely fakeness, like what she communicates is scientifically completely unsustained, which it's, is... Yeah, it's garbage. I went there with my friend Dan Illich when I was in LA. I went to the shop and we played my favorite game to play in an expensive shop, which is you cover the price tag and go, how much do you think this is? And it's always too much. It's disturbing. Yeah, the price are disturbing. The meanings behind them is even more disturbing. But in, back to what you were saying, I think uh, this is why we call it Mona Lisa, partially. Because the Mona Lisa is an incredible paint and also an iconic, a, a pop icon almost. Like everybody knows it. Everybody, literally, is the most famous painting in the world. However, its value is still 
its, its artistic value is incredibly high. So this is the proof of something that is being made very well, very skillfully. It's being crafted and thought. And it also became a masterpiece that everyone can enjoy on so many levels. You know, you can, you can be an expert and you can think about, you know, the color toning and you can just be a lay person like me and think, yeah, this is cute. Look at the eyes. Look at the smile. I like it. I dig it. <laughs> but that's why we also call it because it's that kind of super hard task to bring something that is not junk food is refined, is complex, is well thought and bring it to everyone in a way that everyone can enjoy it. It's difficult. Yeah, immensely difficult. Do you think you have got your teeth into it? Do you have a plan for how to launch it or figure it out or make it available? No, of course I haven't figured it out. <laughs> uh, but it's uh, we are we are experimenting. Um, we we ask uh, we, we won this um, crowdfunding campaign with my university with the University of Milan, and um, this giving us access to a good network to raise money to start to prototype the ideas. You know, to just to play around with ideas and say, okay, this idea works. This idea doesn't work. So um, the idea behind the beginning of this project is actually getting it right. So no, we haven't got it right yet, mainly because we haven't started to playing with the, with the actual tools because you need to pay somebody to write, some, pay somebody to draw. You need to pay people to do a, a good job. You know, you cannot ask them to do it for free. Mm. So we're starting, it's almost a lab at the moment, you know, it's a Mona Lisa lab when we're actually playing around with ideas and we look at an article and we're like, okay, how can we change this and make it more interesting? Can we add a, a, a drawing? Can we add an animation? Let's do this, let's do that. And then we hope that with trials and errors, we will get there. And it's like in any other scientific project, you know, you start from the prototype, you test 10, only two passes the next round. And that's what we're doing now. That's really exciting. This is, this is an exciting time to be in where anything could happen. Yeah, literally. It's also, it feels like almost, uh, um, it is a strange time to build something new. And it's an exciting time to propose something that is science related because I don't know how it's in Australia, but here, something that has been visible from my point of view is that the entire population is scientifically um an alphabet under some point of view you know when this virus hit their st the streets people lost it they they went straight to the supermarket bought uh, um like liters of olive oils for the next two years uh, they just lost it and the toilet first paper. thing egg for you is toilet paper for us we are not so worried about toilet paper i think it's something, <laughs> something. Um, Toilet paper has been savage in Anglo-Saxon countries. So like yeah. uh, England, Canada, the United States, uh, Australia, but not in the Mediterranean countries. Somehow we are not so worried about it. But we Amazing. did both a lot of oil. We were just thinking what comes in, not so much about what comes out. And... <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know, it's just the people lost it. The first thing that they came, popped out was all the, you know, the conspiracy theories 
yeah. straight away. Yeah, there's people so, in England bringing, uh, bringing down 5G masts just because they happen yes. to go up at about the same time. It's like seeing the world as though it were a pun where you're like, oh, well, that's happening at the same time, so it must mean something. Exactly. And you're like looking from a semi-rational point of view and you're like, what is going on, people? The two things are not connected. Why do you need to find an explanation for something that is absolutely so natural, like a virus that spreads among people? Because that's what they do. You know? Uh, why do you have to find a level, a layer of conspiracy? The government, the Chinese, uh, the Germans in Italy, the Germans are bringing the virus in Italy to, <laughs> to drop the economy, this kind of things I heard. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I think people are realizing how bad science education has been. Yeah. And it's, it, people have been sort of fine with letting that slip. And it's been slipping over the last 10, 15, 20, 30 years. People don't care so much about understanding science. I think in part because the things that we use every day have now surpassed us in complexity. You know, in the 50s and 60s, any appliance that you had in your home or your car or anything, if you were a little bit tech savvy, you could probably fix it mm -hmm. if it broke down. Yeah. You know, if your toaster broke down, you could fix it. If your television broke down, you would probably be able to fix it. If your car broke down, you could fix it. If your Hoover broke down, you could fix it. It was just a matter of putting the right parts in the right places. And then we got to this point where you have your iPhone and they're completely opaque to you. You, you wouldn't know how to fix it if it, broke yeah, and even if, even if you could repair the physical part of it you, there's parts of it even if you're like an iphone repair person there's parts of it that are completely beyond your understanding so much of it is is opaque and i think whatever happened in the public sort of psyche at that time people went oh it's too confusing it's too complicated let the scientists figure it out i'll just use the what they tell me yeah the output uh, yeah and that means Definitely. that people don't understand yeah. how to understand things. Yeah, that's for sure true. They, have, they are not bothered us to try to understand. Um, it's uh, staggering to me how much information we have available mm. and how little we are able to use it in the right way. For me, it's not much a problem of software, but it's a problem of hardware. I'm not worried about circulating even more news because the news are there, you know, they are, you, on a click you find them. Mm. I'm more worried about how people use their rational, rational mind to filter them and to believe what they want. You know, it's not that a 20 or 21 years old kid that just came out from high school does not have a decent science background. If you went to school, you must have learned something. But it's how you use them. It's how it's so easy for people to completely forget about logic and rationality and just get driven, dragged away by their own fears. And then they justify the fears with their rationality. Like, oh, I read something about 5Gs and there are the waves and the waves are bad. And just, you know, terrible. That's how you, you use knowledge for a completely wrong purpose. That's what worries me. Not much about, you know, the fake news, which are like 
everywhere, but it's how people choose to believe in fake news that they're not able to trigger the scientific mindset and filter them and say, hey, hang on, is this possible? Who wrote it? Oh, just I found it on Facebook. Maybe it's not real. Maybe I should question my own thinking. Even yeah. if my part of my brain says, believe in it, believe in it, believe, be scared. Yes. Yeah, I absolutely, I absolutely agree. That idea of just, just questioning your reactions as they come to you. The idea that your, your brain doesn't necessarily know what's best for it in the moment. That you are in some ways opaque to yourself. Yeah. And so it's sometimes you need to take a step back and go, am I reacting like this? for the reasons that I think I am, or is it something else? Or do I believe this just because I like the person who told me? Which is one of the things that's happening with Instagram influencers. They become influencers purely because they are familiar to you, not because they have proven themselves to be worthy in any way. You just see them a lot, so they feel familiar. So you think they must have something worth saying. That's a quite a dangerous little slippage of logic there. Yes, that's the slippage of logic is what is worrying me and the opaqueness as you defined it. Hmm. It worries me much more than the, you know, hitting people with, lo with a lot of facts. Who cares if you're not going to able to manipulate, use these facts, putting them in the right order. What's the point? And giving them their proper weight as well in a broader context, because a fact is only important if you can understand where it fits into everything else. You know, you see these stories about, uh, like people are very bad, first of all, like one of the things I noticed, people are very bad at understanding exponential risk curves. Yeah. Really bad, like almost impossible for you to wrap your head around what that actually means. And the second thing is that people take anecdotal evidence and they give that more weight. So if you read a story about a 33-year-old marathon runner, super fit, super healthy, who dies of this virus, you feel all of a sudden more vulnerable than you did five minutes ago before you read that article. But in real terms, you are neither more nor less vulnerable having read that article it actually it actually hasn't changed anything in the fact scenario the statistics are still the same the risk level is still the same but we are our brains work in a way that if we hear the the story we give it more weight and so we have to think about that as a fact that's a fact about the way our brain works the stories we expose ourselves to will um will be given more weight by our brain. So we have to be careful about the stories we expose ourselves to. We have to think quite carefully about what we're letting into our brain. This, you are completely correct. Uh, this is another major problem, how news are reported without this, the numbers, without the statistics. It's very similar to the concept of the anti-vaccine you know, people that you know, the, the statistics are ridiculous. But if you report the case like one child died after a vaccine, it sounds like a huge story. 
However, if you place it in the context of the statistics, the numbers are like 0.000001, which means fundamentally almost background noise. This obviously does not minimize the human loss of the family. But for you that you are reading the news, it's important to be able to contextualize it. So that's, that's a huge problem. The lack of contextualization of an anecdote within a broader picture so that your brain gets fixated on the little thing, on the little number, this guy died. Yep. So, but it's, you know, and, and even if the risks are minuscule, if my child, I've got to be careful of my child because then, you know, and then you go, but yeah, also uh, walking onto the street, the risk of getting hit by a car or being bitten by a dog or catching something from a mushroom or a gas leak in your house or sticking a fork into an electrical socket or falling off the side of your bed and cracking your head open and breaking your neck. And if you don't think about those risks, if you're just thinking, well, the vaccine risk, this 0.001% risk is unacceptable without any of the framework that would say, if you're going to avoid that level of risk, you can't do anything. You end up with a very, um, a very deranged outcome. Yeah, I could, I agree. I see it like the same way. That's a broader problem, I think, of the news world because they are looking for the exceptional to, to, to write something about it. You cannot only write about things that don't happen. You have to write about things that happen. And more the thing is curious or anomalous, and more people will be somehow interested in it. So you forget somehow to mention about the fact that that's an exceptional fact and that the normality is not like that, your baseline. That's a huge problem, I think, in the communication system. John Oliver did a very, uh, quite a good sketch on this when, when it came to the climate change debate, uh, rather than having one scientist who was pro uh, arguments about climate change or one who scientist who was contra. He had 97... <laughs> And then the three, it, to really represent this fallacy that is sort of invisible in so much of, of news coverage about yeah. this kind of thing, if you bring the one person who disagrees. And, and yeah, one to one is not balanced. No, it isn't. You should really give, you know, give things their proper weight and their proper understanding and their proper attention. Which I think I think it will be really fascinating if your if your project manages to have an impact on the culture in that direction. I don't want to set myself for failure, so because I, <laughs> but, um, it's part of the how you write a, a, an article in the right way, also you know, like correct the fallacy of uh, of the like um, subjective coverage, like showing only one point of view and assuming that is one, one, instead the ratio is one to 10, or one to 20, one to 1,000. Um, in general, if you write an article in the right way, even just pointing out, okay, this is a voice out of the mass, but the remaining 99% of people think a different way already helps. But it might be interesting to show it visually, like... <laughs> You know, like like Oliver did, basically. Yeah, I think that's like that's the really fascinating thing about your project. That's and interesting. I think yeah. you should set yourself up for failure. Go on. 
Dream big. Yeah, I'm here for this. That's why we live, right? To fail and try again. <laughs> exactly. Well, um, I should wrap this up uh, because I have to do a show. Uh, I'm doing these live shows every night, so I'm going to have to start organizing that now. But I want you to tell me where people can find you online. Yes. So they can find me on the social like Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook if they look for uh, Mona Lisa Bites, Bites with the Y, like the Bito one zero. So it's all together at Mona Lisa Bites for Instagram and Facebook. And for Twitter, we are Bites Mona Lisa. So it's like inverted. Uh, if they want to know more about the project and the crowdfunding and where we're going and be, be updated, there is a website, which is monalisabytes.com. It's still a shell of the website. We're still building, but there are the basic info on what we're doing, how we're doing it, and the link to our crowdfunding campaign. So those are the three things. I mean, I'm quite excited to see where this goes. Uh, and you and I should just have a normal Zoom chat like this at some point as well, too. I would love to, Alice. I would love to. And the entire project is also is bilingual, Italian and English. So it's open also to um, non-Italian speakers. This is important. We're trying to keep it as international as possible. I used to have a Dante that was like that. There you go. Italian on the other... <laughs> So it should be. <laughs> the the comparison with the Divine Comedy it might be slightly too much, but hey, I take it. <laughs> Let's take it. I feel like science is the Divine Comedy. <laughs> yeah, life is a Divine Comedy, Alice. <laughs> All right, stay in touch. Good luck in Milan. Thank Bye. you very much. You good luck in uh, Sydney? Sydney at the moment, yeah. Yeah, at the moment. Enjoy it and a big hug to Australia from very okay, far away. You. Henry, thank say hi. you. Thanks. Uh, say hi to him too. I will. Bye. Bye.
Turns around for to view her frames, crying damn you doffers, cry up your ends, lousy rifle doll, lousy rifle day. And when the boss he looks round the door, tie your ends up doffers, he will roar. Well, tie our ends up, we surely do, for Elsie Thompson, but not for you. Lally rifle doll, lally rifle day. Oh, Elsie Thompson is going away, is it tomorrow or yet today? We'll tie our ends up and leave our frames and wait for Elsie to return again. Lally rifle doll, lally rifle day.